All right. Assalamu alaikum, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome everyone um, to another amazing session. Um, we are, I'm so excited to be covering um, Surah uh, Muhammad tonight. Um, I know that we had mentioned at the last, um, at the end of the last halakha, that we would be doing Q and A uh, for Surah Al-Anfal. Um, what we decided um, we actually are going to do is uh, probably cover. Surah Muhammad tonight, inshallah, and then we can do Q&A for both um, sessions, for both Surah Al-Anfal and for Muhammad um, this coming Tuesday, inshallah. So um, if you have any questions, please do forward them to me um, on my email, grace at usuli.org, and then um, inshallah, that, that'll be the plan, unless, uh, unless, you know, we always encourage Sheikh to take his time and go slow. So if you need, take as much time as you need, and we can always readjust to make sure we, we cover everything, inshallah. Um, so I, I just wanted to um, encourage people if they haven't watched the khutbah from yesterday um, just it was a really important um, message I mean it, um, Sheikh spent a lot of time as usual talking about um, what's happening in the world in France in the EU Islamophobia but what I really wanted to call attention to was the issue of suicide and addiction among Muslims, which is something that people really don't talk about in Muslim spaces and is, is reaching um, you know, crisis level or has reached crisis level. There's, there's a lot of you know, writing, a lot of people who are focused on this issue, but not a lot of people talking about it. Um, and it was surprising to me to know that um, you know, if you are a Muslim, you are twice as likely to become an addict, or twice as likely, twice as likely to um, attempt suicide, or even be successful at suicide. And that these topics are so taboo that they are um, ten times less likely to be talked about in a Muslim space than any other religious space. So you know, this is a so alarming and so distressing that, um, and I think we know this to be true. That you know, I, I know from our own experiences that we have you know in the past raised with you know mosque leadership hey you know the the mosque should be a place where people can come even for like meetings for aa meetings because you know churches often times are hosting aa meetings and they become you know a refuge for people who are looking for help and that suggestion was not received kindly um and you know that is just so wrong and Oh my gosh, so sorry. <laughs> we just realized, I, I, sorry you guys, my, my volume was completely turned off. Um, should I start again or no? I mean. Yeah, sum, sum up from the beginning. Okay, summary, so summary, my yeah. summary basically is that um, I want to encourage people to watch the khutbah from yesterday because Sheikh spent a lot of time raising a very important issue about um, the crisis level of um, addiction and suicides in um, the Muslim context, and that if you are um, Muslim um, or you know born into a Muslim household, raised into raised in a Muslim household, you are in this day and age twice as likely to be an addict and twice as likely to either attempt suicide or potentially also be successful at suicide, and that this is such a taboo topic that compared to other religious groups, um, it is. 10 times more taboo and it's something that is not talked about um, in Muslim spaces. It's not, you know, um, something that is dealt with and it's reached crisis proportion. Clearly Islamophobia is a factor in that because it's very difficult obviously to be Muslim. Like the moment you mention that you're Muslim, you're already in a, in a defensive posture. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, hypocrisy, a lot of 
um, contradiction, pathologies that are not dealt with honestly, um, and there's obviously just a lot of, um, you know, hatred that is thrown at you, um, a lot of racism, bigotry, and all of that has an incredible effect, um, especially among our, our youth, um, and mosques have not been exactly um, very amenable to talking about these issues openly um, and not even oftentimes providing the resources necessary. So um, I just wanted to encourage you to give the watch the example the again. The example about the the church. The, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, so the in our in our experience, you know, we had suggested that in the mosque space, um, at least where where we were, that they consider holding AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, or Narcotics Anonymous meetings, um, so that the mosque could be a place where people could turn for help. And that suggestion was not at all widely received. And when you compare that to um, oftentimes, you know, you find AA meetings in churches um, all over the place. Um, it's such a stark difference in how we address these critical issues. And obviously, you know, when, when Muslims are now um, suffering at much higher levels than their co-religionists, you know, we have to step up and, and provide, you know, that, um, you know, those resources and whatever help is necessary. Um, so we obviously have a lot going on, but, you know, so I... Just again, wanted to call attention to that. You know, we we try to talk about t topics here that are not um, talked about in other Muslim spaces, and you know, um, we we have to address these issues head on and and do what is necessary. So um, again, you know, please do um, watch that. It was a, a, extremely valuable, also for the education about what's happening in in France as France takes over the presidency of e the EU and what that means for policies um, and attitudes towards Muslims. So um, shifting gears, I just wanted to also say, um, you know, I'm going to talk about this um, more in the future, but we, you know, we're right now in a little bit of a respite because we're on winter break, but um, school is about to start, the law school is about to start again um, in about a week and a half or so. Um, and so that is going to impact, um, we'll see, um, our Project Illumin pace. Um, unfortunately, you know, we, as you know, we had started fundraising for um, Project Illumin way back last summer. Our hope was to try and, um, you know, really free everybody to focus on this project um, intensely. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, because we were not able to meet our full fundraising goal, um, the professor continues to teach a full-time schedule, and this semester he's, he's got actually two courses, which is even more intense. Um, and then he just told me last night that he has, um, he's now, he's also on the, the committee that reviews um, people that are getting hired. So they have three people on the docket this semester, which is a ton of work, which means you basically have to review everything that these three people who are coming up for, you know, a position or a potential hire, everything that they've written, everything that they've done, it's a ton of work um, on top of a full-time schedule. So that will obviously have a lot of impact on, on how much time and energy the sheikh has here. I mention that because, um, you know, one, of course, we, we may have to adjust how many halakas we, we cover in a week um, or, you know, in our schedule, but also to um, kind of uh, drop in a, a plug for Project Illumin Phase 2, which I want to start also fundraising for, because this um, approach to the Quran has been so extremely valuable. As you know, the way that we have, you know, learned what we've learned 
from the, the mastery of, of knowledge that Sheikh has, you know, commanded over his lifetime and all the different sources to arrive at what, what we are knowing now, he has taken that same approach to understanding the life of the Prophet. Um, you know, and really understanding, you know, what, who was the prophet, not just from like what wars he fought, but what, you know, reports are about how people loved him and what he meant in their lives and seeing a personal side. And these are things that you can only piece together as a scholar who has command of a lot of different areas of knowledge and can put together whether it's poetry or reports about, you know, how people acted with the prophet or what the prophet did. You know, it's something extremely special. And this falls exactly into what, you know, I'm, I'm talking about when Muslims have a lot of, you know, doubt about their faith. You know, the Prophet is so under attack by Islamophobic narratives, you know, whether it's that he's accused of being a pedophile or, you know, all the countless stories about how evil the Prophet is, that obviously shakes the faith of young Muslims. And this is, you know, sort of a, a, a point of like a, a, you know, the weak underbelly, right? People, um, if they don't connect with the Prophet, they don't know if they can trust the Prophet, they don't know, you know, they have so much doubt. This is a huge source of, um, of need for people to understand. So, so phase two of Project Illumin, inshallah, would be to do the, siri, the, the sira, excuse me, and approach it from this very beautiful, unique um, you know, um, angle that only you know, this particular scholar has been able to access through his lifetime of research. So um, you know, I don't want to say much about the detail, but clearly any program, as I know from, from phase one of Project Illumin, takes a lot of lead time, takes a lot of fundraising, takes a lot of planning. Um, I want to just plant the seed now. People have been with us. They've been supporting us through this project. We want to continue on after, inshallah, the tafsir um, into the sira. So you know, if you can continue to support us, um, if you, you know, can find it in your, in your budget even to support us with a regular um, you know, monthly donation, this is what we're working towards, and this is so important for the future of Muslims and Islam. So I just want to put it, put that out there, and um, it'll be a different different animal than than Project Illumin Phase One, but it'll be extremely special and really important for our legacy and for our future as Muslims. So just to put that out there, and. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that, and when I he heard that um, after uh, after after Istikhara prayer that this was Surah Muhammad, I took that as a very positive sign. So, inshallah, I'm so excited, and I, I hope that inshallah we can continue on our, our path to really understanding the Quran and further understanding uh, the Sirah. So, thank you so much for joining us, and inshallah we look forward to an amazing session. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Subhanallah al-Aliyah al-Azim walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa afdalu salat wa taslim ala Muhammad al-Nabi al-Amin khatam al-Rusli wal-Anbiya al-Ajma'in al-Wusar rahmatan lil-Alameen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa amtaba'u bi ihsanin ila yawm al-Din Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya rabbil alameen Inshallah, tonight we'll cover Surat Muhammad. Um, through a long career of, of saying the same things over and over. It's remarkable, you know, a professor at, at Columbia
because he's willing to associate the United Arab Emirates to happiness, the Emiratis dropped three million dollars. Um, is it is it conceivable that is it really conceivable that all the people that have money in the Muslim world no longer care about the fate of their religion, their their Quran, their Sirah. Is it conceivable that the people that care are the ones that don't have money? Is it conceivable that people who have money can't differentiate between methodically constituted and structured scholars uh, from propagandists and they can't tell the difference? Uh, subhanallah, subhanallah. Um, you know, I uh, I do get, alhamdulillah, quite a few people write and say, you know, trying to encourage me and say you're you're not alone and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it is uh, very noticeable that these are usually the people that don't have money um, and their abilities are very modest. And um, ideas, the quality of ideas among a people is what constitutes the trajectory of their future. When you look at a people and you do a sociological study as to what type of ideas animate them, what type of ideas define their culture, what type of ideas inspire them, what type of ideas justify them, explain them? What type of ideas do they utilize to understand their existence, their relationships? Um, and then you can tell a great deal about where these people are in the world and what their future is going to be in the world. And um, it is, you know, I used to hear Sheikh Muhammad al-Ghazali say all the time that the man was lived his life tormented by the contradiction of um, people who have received the Quran, but yet the prevailing ideas among them are so subpar do not come close to the quality of the Quran. And 
I have now reached the age, around the age, where I, the, the age at which Sheikh Muhammad Ghazali was at when I would hear him say that. Um, of course, then he continued saying it until he got much older, until he passed away. Rahmanullah. And subhanAllah, so from the 70s and 80s till today, the only thing that changed is things got much worse. From 70s and 80s till today, Islamophobia exploded upon the world. Muslims have internalized many of the doctrines and ideas and doubts of Islamophobia subconsciously. Um, Islamophobia, as I'm, I'm teaching a course next semester called Muslims, Race and Law, and as I'm preparing for this course, you start you do a literature review, a literature review where you pretty much read anything relevant to your course. And it is, the evidence is overwhelming and undeniable that the atmosphere of general hostility to Muslim identity, whether consciously or subconsciously, makes our children experience a level of stress, emotional stress growing up about their identity and their family relations, their friendships, their careers, approximating approximating the level of stress that a Jew experienced during the Nazi era in Europe, approximating the level of stress that a black person experiences growing up in some in areas of New York and Philadelphia and LA where you are constantly in contact with an unfriendly police force, approximating the level of stress that the Japanese experienced in California during World War II, approximating the level of stress that the Chinese experienced during the Chinese exclusion laws in the US. In other words, growing up constantly feeling like you're a suspect. And that that stress, that stress makes a Muslim child 10 times more likely to grow up disassociating from their faith. 10 times more likely Jew will say, than a Jew to say, I am a Jew, or a Christian to say, I'm a Christian, well, our children are 10 times more likely to say, I am not Muslim, compared to a Jew or a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu. And twice, uh, two times more likely or twice as likely 
to end up a drug addict or seriously attempting suicide or achieving suicide. And according to that same literature, the number of Muslims in this in, in the West who are millionaires exceeds many other minority groups, including Asians, and comes close to the number of millionaires in the Jewish community. And I've never had the experience, now I've been saying the same thing for over 30 years, nothing has changed. I've never had the experience of a wealthy human being coming in and saying, you know, I'm investing in a human being. I'm investing in an intellect. Here's a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars. I can't get the job done because I don't have, I didn't commit my life, I didn't dedicate my life to studying and education and I've, I've committed or I've, in, my life has been about making money. So I'm investing in human beings and here, go get the job done. It hasn't happened. And at this point, I accept that I will leave this world without it happening. And it blows my mind. Because I'll tell you, all the books about Islamophobia, and just preparing for this course, course, I've gone through over 40 books. If you go to my den, you'll see all the books in piles around my desk. And these are just the books. We're not talking about the articles. Most people don't know even that there's a journal dedicated, an academic journal dedicated to publishing articles about Islamophobia. And the amount of academic articles that have been published on Islamophobia are in the hundreds. And I'll tell you, most of these books are, the vast majority of these books are published by academic presses and are extremely pricey. It's very common for a book to be, these, Islamo, these books about studies about Islamophobia, be $50 to $100 or even more because the amount of copies they sell are very limited, which tells you that, you know, the same thing I've been saying since coming to the United States. No Muslims feels a sense of duty to even educate themselves about what dedicated scholars have, and most of them are not Muslim, by the way. Most of those authors of these books are not Muslim. They just write them out of a sense of moral duty or academic interests or whatnot. And it, it is just, it is remarkable. It is remarkable. Um, the material in these books 
don't enter Muslim spaces. I never go into a Muslim space and found even and find even an awareness of the research that exists in this work. It is it is truly remarkable. I mean, so how many people know, how many people know that the reason the United States can engage in targeted killings of Muslims around the world is because the Supreme Court in a series of decisions said that the government can detain a Muslim indefinitely because as a matter of law, that individual, as long as the government says that this person is part of the war on terror and was captured in what the government considers a theater of war, then it can detain this person indefinitely. And because this person was deemed as a legal matter to be without rights, so as a matter of law, they're not human. They're without rights. In a very famous legal memo, during the Bush administration, and later refined during the Obama administration by a professor at Yale Law School, that if you can hold them indefinitely, then you can kill them. So we, and, and Muslims coexist with this, and then you have people in, in, in places like Zaytuna say, don't you dare say Muslims are discriminated against or that there is a, or that they're persecuted. It is mind-boggling, institutionally, structurally. We live in a country which gave the government the right. If, if, you're, if you're not a Muslim, you can't, if you're not a Muslim, in other words, in part, you come from a part of the world in which the U.S. can't claim it is engaged in a war against terror and in which there is no proclaimed theater of war, then you can't hold people indefinitely without charges or trial or simply kill them around the world. But you can do this in most parts of the Muslim world. You can't do this maybe in Turkey, but you can definitely do it in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Syria. In... How many people know that the vast majority of assaults, bigoted assaults against Muslims that are committed in the United States and Europe continue to be categorized as crimes of passion instead of 
as crimes of prejudice. And that Muslims have been absent from the playing field, so the government pretty much, federal governments, state governments, European governments, have absolute discretion to say, well, you know, uh, yeah, this guy said a bunch of bigoted stuff about Islam, but we're not going to categorize it as a racial crime or as a prejudicial crime. We're, we're just going to persecute it as a crime of passion, as a private, as a personal matter. And does this make a difference? Yeah, absolutely, it makes a difference in, in the life of your child, in how your child navigates life. Okay. Surah Muhammad. So, first. One of the most interesting things about Surah Muhammad is that we are not quite sure when the Surah was revealed. We know that it was revealed at the beginning of the Medina period. The reports confront you as a challenge right away because you have even some reports that claim it's Meccan. I mean, although very unreliably, but nevertheless, you, you have these reports. You have reports that say that it was revealed right, right at the cusp of the Hijra. So right after the Hijra, so that would make it before Battle of Badr and Uhud. You have reports that say that some of Surah Muhammad was even revealed at the very end of the Medina period, claim that it was revealed at Fath Mecca. And then you have a considerable amount of reports that say it was revealed after Surah Al-Hadid. And if it was revealed after Surah Al-Hadid, then it would be at the beginning of the Medina period, but after the Battle of Badr and after the Battle of Uhud. But before Ghazwat al-Khandaq, before the Battle of the Trench. And when you have reports that are so diverse and often inconsistent, 
and you delve into you know, an attempt to understand, well, who's exactly claiming what and whether, in fact, they would have had the knowledge to be able to, you know, anyway. After you engage in the type of analysis uh, about the historicity or historical um Then you also look at the substantive claim or substantive, uh, um, uh, the substance of the surah itself to see if it helps you in understanding what role it played and when. And notably, Surah Muhammad is the surah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says that what you should do with prisoners of war is either men or fida, either just release them, that's men, or ransom them means either you ransom for money or you exchanging prisoners of war, that also is considered for that. Now, notice, if it was revealed before the Battle of Badr, then the entire thing we encountered was Surat Al-Anfal, where you have this narrative that Abu Bakr said, well, ransom them, and Omar said, well, execute them, and then Omar was, uh, uh, the thing we covered with Surat al-Fal, that then Surat al-Fal comes and, and supports the position of Omar. Well, that would not make any sense because this whole entire narrative wouldn't make any sense because then you have Surat Muhammad had explicitly said what you should do about prisoners of war and in conflict with this entire narrative that we have. Okay, what if it was revealed after the Battle of Badr? Well, if it was revealed after the Battle of Badr, then again, it would be inconsistent with this entire narrative about Abu Bakr and Omar and, and Revelation coming and supporting Omar and so on. From various indications that we I will note as we go through the surah, inshallah, I think it is very likely, in all likelihood, that Surah Muhammad was revealed after Badr and after Uhud, but probably shortly after the revelation of Al-Umran. I don't know if it's was if it was revealed. I couldn't come to some type of comfortable opinion about whether in fact it was revealed right after Surat al-Hadid as some reports claim.
But um, inshallah, as we'll see, in, in all likelihood, it was a revelation shortly after Uhud and shortly after Al-Umran and so obviously it would come after Baqarah and, 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 and Fal and might even it might, as I said you know it, there's a good possibility that indeed it is after Al-Hadid um, but I, I, I don't know okay now, so, so that's one thing, especially when you understand the message of Surah Muhammad. Um, if you are trying to reconstruct the Quranic moment and internalize the Quranic moment and sort of go along with the companions as they were receiving the Quran and try to internalize, um, then understanding sort of what Surah Muhammad does and when becomes important. The other interesting aspect about Surah Muhammad is the name itself. So, um, the name of the Prophet, والسلام, if my memory serves me right, I'm, uh, is mentioned, I think, four times in the Quran. Right? So, it's in Ali Amran, it's in Al Ahzab. It is in Surah Muhammad and is in Surah Al-Fatih. And in each of these surah, Al-Umran, Al-Ahzab, Muhammad, and Al-Fatih, the Prophet is mentioned by name as Muhammad. Um, and, and I'm talking about the, the exact that exact name, Muhammad, as opposed to Ahmad or or Rasul or Nabi, which is of course numerous, but an Ahmad at least once. Okay, but it is in this surah, not in Al-Ahzab and not in Al-Fatih, that the surah gets named after the Prophet But the surah clearly doesn't tell you anything about the Prophet There are other surahs in the Quran um, that at least talk about the wives of the Prophet or talk about um, the companions around the Prophet. But, but this surah doesn't really tell you anything about the Prophet, but yet it is named after the Prophet. And what is even more interesting is that we have reports that when the surah was revealed, at least early on, some prominent 
companions would refer to it as Surat al-Qital, um, the Surat al-Qital, the, 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 the warfare surah, um, or even that we have one report in which I forgot which uh, of um, I forgot exactly who it was that said Surat al-Ladina Kafaru um, referred to it by Surat as al-Ladina Kafaru as opposed to Surat Qital or but we have several reports referring to it as Surat Qital. But clearly what emerges, the consensus that builds up very early on is that this is Surah Muhammad. This is what it should be called. And if you want to then understand, well, why would, why would it become known as Surah Muhammad? There are there are many good reasons that if you read Surah Al-Fatih, if you study Surah Al-Fatih, you'd say, well, you know, this seems to be more Muhammad-centered than Surah Muhammad itself, at least superficially so. Um, but nevertheless, it, it doesn't ever become known as Surah, it becomes known as Surah Al-Fatih. And this becomes known as Surah Muhammad. And I think that one can understand why because of the function that Surah Muhammad plays in Islamic history. Sort of its, its contextual role and its message which, of course, um, its message, which uh, um, uh, in in a how do I put uh, put, it, put this in a state of taqabul, a state of if you if you construct opposites, it is clearly saying that there's the path of the prophet and there is in 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 a realm of opposites you have no all human beings must make a clear choice either the path of the prophet or the antithesis. And it, it presents, as we'll see, the message is rather nuanced, but it presents this issue in um, a poignant and undeniable way. Okay. So it starts out Notably, it doesn't start out uh, with tasbih or tahmid or 
المقطعه or or the letters like alif lam mim none of that but it starts out with a very blunt message and sort of just taking the message confronting you with it or confronting you with the message right out right in your face الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَصَدُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَضَلَّ أَعْمَالَهُمْ So, those who have rejected the message أَضَلَّ أَعْمَالَهُمْ أَضَلَّ أَعْمَالَهُمْ So, Muhammad Asad says, all their good deeds, God will let go to waste. Now, notice here that it doesn't just say those who rejected the message, but, or Muhammad Asad translates it as bent on denying the truth. But it says those who've rejected the message, الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَصَدُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلِ And committed themselves to a way of life that obstructs the path to God. These two elements... Now, most commentators, like Muhammad Asad, say what this means is that those who reject the message and obstruct the path to God, whatever good deeds they've done will count for nothing. So, ultimately, the good that they've done, they will be rewarded for on this earth, but not in the hereafter. I think that nothing in the text itself necessarily leads to this conclusion. Read the text plainly. الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَصَدُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ those who have rejected the message and and will and it will be even more clear as we look at the opposites that surah muhammad constructs that those who rejected the message and saddu an obstructed the path to allah now as we will see obstruction doesn't necessarily has to be with open hostility. As Surah Muhammad itself will make clear, obstruction could be by lahn al that by obfuscating issues, speaking in a way that um, misguides, that 
confuses and obscures issues, being morally wishy-washy, in other words, instead of morally upright. Now, if what the literal meaning of the ayah is that their path, their amal, will be misguided. In other words, it's like saying they're going down the wrong path. They are going the wrong direction. Okay. Now, this is juxtaposed to those those who believe and do good deeds and then repeats again and follow clearly what Muhammad received and the affirmation that it is the haq and remember that the Quran tells us that the entire cause, the entire reason for what you Muslims are going through is ihqaq al-haq, is to affirm al-haq. So here, again, Allah says, وَهُوَ الْحَقِّ مِنْ رَبِّهِمْ And this is indeed the haq from the, the, the truth. Okay. أَصْلَحَ بَالَهُمْ So, with, for Allah will will cleanse their sins. So I think that you can't understand unless you put it in the context of its contextual context of as the opposite of Aslahabalahum. And let's see how so Muhammad Asad says, Aslaha Balaam and will set their hearts at rest. What is what is Islah al Bal? Well, first, what is Il Bal? Il Bal is, is uh, incidentally, it, it's not etymologically, the etymology of the word is not from Arabic. It's, it's an Aramaic word that was imported into Arabic. And in Aramaic, often ilbal referred to a, a pouch where you keep important things or a container where you put um, important things. And then it moved, it was Arabized. Okay, anyway. But ilbal is your innermost conscious. It is the 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 
It is sort of your 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 psychological essence, if you will. So Islah al-Bal, so if I say to you Ma ala baluk what if the, if I say what what is on your bell? So I'm asking you, what is on your mind? So what concerns you? What preoccupies you? Not just intellectually, but even emotionally, psychologically. If I tell you, anta ala bali, means it's not that I remember you every once in, every once in, in uh, uh, then, but if I tell you, anta ala bali, means you are part of my, very consciousness. I, 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 you are. I'm constantly think of you. I don't forget you. So when Allah says, "Well, those who adhere to the message that was given to Muhammad, what Allah does for them is islah al-bal, while those who have." rejected that message what Allah does with them is dalalul a'mal in that context I think it is clear that Allah is not talking about the fate of good deeds in the hereafter but Allah is saying listen If you want inner peace, islah al-bal, if you want repose, if you want to make sense of life, if you want to be anchored in meaning, in purpose, all of that is encompassed by that expression, islah al-bal. Islah al-bal is when you are not confused, when things are not mixed up in your mind, you're not sure why and how or when. Islah al-bal, when you have, you are at peace with yourself and the world. That's islah al-bal. But idlal al-a'mal, is when you are, you act, but it is not clear for what purpose. It is not clear that the meaning that you are pursuing or achieving. So the beginning of this surah, Allah, there's a, there was some, a scholar that once described the state of taqabul, a state of juxtaposing opposites. Um, but it doesn't seem like I've written down. So I'm just relying on my memory. It's like saying, okay, there is a fundamental choice here from the very beginning the past with Muhammad 
and the opportunity at Islah al-Bal or the aimlessness and lack of purpose that is the inevitable result of not following this path. Okay, let's go on because then the message uh, builds upon itself. Okay. Uh, a lot of con commentators said uh, Islah al-Bal is Islah al-Niyya or Aslah al-Niyyatihim. Islah al-Niyya means to, to pure, to, to um, the way they put it was to, that they, it, Allah then purifies their intentions, which is the same, I think it is very close to the idea of that you have, you're anchored in meaning and you have a sense of propose and tranquility about yourself. You don't it, it exist in a the state of aimlessness and confusion. Okay. No. ذلك بأن الذين كفروا اتبعوا الباطل وأن الذين آمنوا اتبعوا الحق من ربهم كذلك يضرب الله للناس أمثالهم. Why is this? Because this ayah number third ayah simply reaffirms the message of the previous two ayat, that those who rejected the message are ultimately following a bottle, falsehood. But those who accepted the message are on the path of haqq. The interesting expression here is, كَذَلِكَ يَضْرِبُ اللَّهُ لِلنَّاسِ أَمْثَالَهُمْ So, Let's see first how Muhammad Asad translates it. So three, Muhammad Asad translates it as, um, and this way does God set forth unto humans the parables of their true state. Not all commentators noticed or, or paused at this very fascinating expression because Allah describes this very this very saga this this sort of the the ultimate interplay of this cosmic law that if you are anchored in the message of Muhammad you are anchored in meaning, in purpose. If you are truly anchored in this message of Muhammad you are anchored in a state of fulfillment and peace, inner peace, islah al-bal. While if you're not, 
then you are in the opposite state. And then Allah describes this, and this is the only time in the Quran, that Allah refers to this as an amthal, as in itself a parable. So a lot of Quranic commentators just said, well, the reason he said, Allah said, amthalahum uh, is because of sajah, is because of the music of the, of the surah itself, that it, all the surah adopts that. Um, but that's, of course, not a very persuasive response. Zamakhshari, who talked about the issue head on and says, uh, So if you wonder, how is this a parable? I mean, God is saying, follow Muhammad the prophet if you want inner sanctuary and if you don't, you are going to be a state of loss. And then you say, well, why is this described as a parable? And Zamakhshari then responds to this by saying, well, so if you wonder, جَعْلَ اتِّبَاعِ الْبَاطِلِ مَثَلًا لِعَمَلِ الْكُفَّارِ وَاتِّبَاعِ الْحَقِّ مَثَلًا لِعَمَلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ What he's saying here is the reality of the, the truth of the matter is is that it is not always going to be the case that if you are a believer you are going to indeed achieve the results that Allah is saying you should achieve. Just because you are a believer, you're not always going to be able to pursue haqq. And you're not always going to be able to achieve salah al-bal. Similarly, if you're a kafir, it is not going to be the case that in every situation, you will be at a state of loss and anxiety. But the, these are paradigms. These are paradigmatic constructs different trajectories that and that is why they are described as parables as amthal it's like telling you put this differently i might tell you listen follow the path of muhammad if you want to have inner sanctuary and then you say to me well i know someone, I know a Muslim who completely, according to you, your, the claim you're making, completely follows Muhammad but doesn't have inner peace. Or you might say to me, I know someone who doesn't follow Muhammad but has a lot of inner peace. 
And I tell you, and then my response is, well, knowing of this case study or that case study is not a response to the argument about the paradigms themselves in telling you that this paradigm should have these results and that paradigm should have these results. You are these types of... Um, and, and that's why they're described as parables. Now, indeed, what is after the Battle of Uhud, it, this was sort of evident in the Battle of Badr, but especially after the Battle of Uhud, what emerges on the surface, and this is something we can learn a great deal from, Battle of Uhud and the extremely layered and sophisticated message from Surah Al-Baqarah and Al-Umran and, and Thad there is, there are the companions around the Prophet ﷺ and the, the, the group of people and Alil Bayt who are, you know, digesting this material in an intensely, in a very intense way. But at the same time, the layered nuance of these messages emboldens those that we now call the hypocrites in Medina. In other words, the people who are full of doubt, the people who are not sure whether they want to stay with the Prophet Muhammad the people who are um, you know, they're, they're playing the field and waiting to see who comes up on top and they want to, and they'll go with, with whoever goes, uh, prevails. And unfortunately, a lot of people are like that. A lot of people will sort of say, well, you know, I'm not going to make any commitment because I'm not sure how things are going to turn out. So I'm going to stay on the fence. And Put yourself in the historical moment to understand, right? Yes, the first battle went well for Muslims, but the second battle didn't. And the message that the Quran comes with is not a message of, you know, a, 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 a hurrah, hurrah, cheerleading message. It's a layered message that even comes and says to a lot of people, if you're in it for the money, we don't want you. Well, all the superficial folks started complaining about the intensity of the Quranic message. 
they had no patience. They, they didn't want to, someone to come and say, say to them, well, you know, let me tell you about what this means for history, why, we have, why we're doing all of this effort in Medina, why are we taking care of the poor, why are we taking care of the wayfarer, why are we taking care of refugees, why are we, you know, why are we doing all these sacrifices? Oh, you're giving me a headache, just let me live. So what they started saying, which is really, and Surah Muhammad will refer to this, by the way, very explicitly, is every time the Prophet would receive revelation, they would say, oh, here we go again. Another message that's going to complicate our lives, oh, here we go again whining about the sophistication of the Quranic message. Oh, here we go, it's going to tell us to give more money again. Oh, he's going to tell us to, it's not about, uh, you shouldn't be in it for the spoils and for the wealth. Oh, he's going to tell us to take care of our, you know, this and that again. Oh my God, you know, it never ends. But some even went further than that. Some started going to the, um, especially the after the Battle of Uhud, the hostility of the Jewish tribes and the polemics of the Jewish tribes reached a crescendo. And Banu Qurayza in particular, and, and I, I, I need to um, recheck this because I can't remember now whether it was Banu Qurayza or Banu Nadir, but I'll, I'll check and I'll verify it. I, I didn't think I was going to talk about this, so I, I didn't check before the halakha, but anyway. It was either Banu Khurayza or Banu Nadir. Had initially, initially, after the Battle of Badr, made a proclamation that was surprising and had a huge, uh, resonated all over Medina. This tribe openly said, you know what? Muhammad is the prophet that is predicted in the Torah. He is the Messiah that we are waiting for. But after the Battle of Uhud, that tribe went back on his proclamation and said, no, he's not. So that was a blow, but add to this, after Uhud, the Jewish tribes started, became very vocal about, oh my God, we brought in this refugee, you guys brought into this refugee into Medina, and he is going to end up causing 
a huge disaster. Because of him, Medina will end up invaded. We are all going to end up being sold in slavery. What the heck are you doing? You, you, you know, you, you, this is a, you know, look, their God promised them victory. And even after Uhud, their God doesn't come and say, you know, you are victorious regardless of what you do. Their God comes in and says, oh, you know, you, if you don't give and if you don't do this and if you don't do that, then God will not be with you. You know, we are the chosen people. They're not even, the God doesn't even tell them they're chosen. The God, God tells them, only if you do a good job, I'll be with you. Well, what if they don't do a good job and we all end up being sold into slavery? And the same folks that were saying, oh, here we go again, another revelation, another, you know, uh, burden, another instruction, another whatever, started socializing and bonding with the Jewish tribes and what they would tell the Jewish tribes is, well, you know, because the tribes are telling them, look, Muhammad is going to lead us into a disaster. The next battle, we're all going to end up being slaves. So what they would tell them is, listen, we're just... Go, we're just a, a, a pretending to be Muslims, or we're, we just go to prayers, but we are not going to support his war effort. When it comes to revelations about fighting, we're out. So don't worry. Do, do you see what I'm saying? It, it's like it, it, it's, a, it's a form of sleaziness that we are very accustomed to in our modern age. You come and you say, well, it's not by principles. It's not a firm commitment. Uh, I'm going to straddle the fence. Uh, you know, I'm with you, but only to a point. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm with you, but don't ask me to sacrifice too much. I'm with you, but don't ask me to change my lifestyle. I'm with you, but don't tell me that, you know, I have to restructure my whole life. That was the serious problem that Surah Muhammad comes and confronts. And that is why I'm telling you it was clearly after Uhud and probably after Al-Hadid because Al-Hadid tells Muslims you have to be like steel firm but flexible well you know what we have a lot of reports of those same people which if I ever do the CEDAW project uh, you know we'll talk about some of the, the, the characters they, they, you know, because we know them by name and, and their background and who they were and so on We're mocking this message. We're saying, what is this? You know, it's always, it's never just straightforward. You know, it's not like our poetry where it talks about, you know, we, we understand our poetry, our poetry is black and white. It talks about who has honor, who doesn't have honor, who, you know, 
avenges their blood? Who doesn't avenge their blood? Who's brave? Who's not brave? The Quran is complicated. In our language today, it's sort of like the Quran gives us a headache, that type of thing. And so, and we will see as Surah Muhammad unfolds. Okay. So Allah comes and says, you know, these are paradigms. These are amsal. Very similar, if I was writing a commentary on the Quran, I would say very similar to saying, this is a philosophy of life. This is an ideology. It is a conceptualization of your role. Okay. So, and then it goes right to the heart of the issue. And it says, فَإِذَا لَقِيتُمُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فَضَرْبُ الرِّقَابِ Right to the heart of the issue. Allah knows that you know all this back and forth about warfare because and the presence of Muhammad والسلام, in Medina that now has committed after Badr and Uhud has committed the town of Yathrib to a hostile relationship with Mecca and its allies and, and as we'll see inshallah Mecca had many allies So it is saying if you become committed to this philosophy, in other words, if you are committed to the ideology that says follow Muhammad والسلام, there is no way around being also committed to what you detest the most and that's the fighting what you deem the most dangerous and that's qital and notice that here is where right at the beginning it says so فَإِذَا أَسْخَنْتُمُوهُمْ فَشُدُّوا الْوَثَاقِ فَإِمَّا مَنَّا بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ فَإِمَّا مَنَّا بَعْدُ وَإِمَّا فِدَاء So right away it says either until you fight until you in fact establish or affirm your power. Askhantumu means you hurt them. You cause damage. You 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 get the point across. Now, once you've done that, once you've established 
your power and your strength, then you can either forget, you know, release the prisoners or ransom the prisoners. And as we said, this ayah, whether it was revealed before bed or after bed, clearly tells you that the story about Omar and Abu Bakr and, and executing the prisoners is just without foundation. Although, in unfortunately, in books of Tafsir, you'll find you'll find some very strange discussions about um, the ayah number four. So a lot of Mufassirun were, were troubled by this ayah. And some of them said, well, it was abrogated. But if it was revealed after Badr or Uhud, or even if it was revealed uh, before, uh, what abrogates it? And normally they'll say what abrogates it is um, um, فَاقْتُلُوهُمْ حَيْثُ ثَقِفْتُمُوهُمْ In later ayah, known as often as ayat al-sayf, some, actually the majority, however, said, well, it's not abrogated, but it enters into the debates, juristic debates, about um, what to do with prisoners of war. And the predominant opinion, the Shafi opinion and the opinion of, of the majority at least, is whether what you do with prisoners of war is up to the imam. That the ruler has discretion to decide whether to execute or ransom or free. And then other you know, jurists then argue that, well, that should depend on what the enemy does with Muslim prisoners of war, so in other words, reciprocity. But the Quran itself clearly says that the options are either ransom or freedom. The Quran itself doesn't mention enslavement, sabi, and doesn't mention execution. And I think that that was quite intentional. Because what the Quran is affirming it what is what is good in perpetuity. Historical practice might make a concession in way or another, but what is preserved in the Quranic text is what has a, a moral power, if you will. And in this context, what ends up being preserved in the Quranic text, or what the Quran affirms, is this principle that either, you know, either you, you exchange, because exchange of prisoners is included in Fidat, um, or after the war ends, you release them. But you hold on to them until the war ends. Okay. 
But then the Quran comes and says, Notice that if Allah would have wished, understand that if the point was victory, if the point is simply to destroy those who do not believe, or to conquer those who do not believe, or if the point was to defeat kufr, understand that Allah doesn't need you to do this. In fact, that is what's going to happen in the hereafter. That is not the point. Allah doesn't need you to conquer or defeat or any of the things that that matters to you. ولكن ليبلو بعضكم ببعض والذين قتلوا في سبيل الله فلا يضل أعمالهم. The purpose, the point. ولو يشاء الله لانتصر منهم ولكن ليبلو بعضكم ببعض. The point is to vet. to vet human beings through the trial and tribulations of the, the trials that you pose to one another. So, let's look at So if God would, if God indeed Sorry, and so if God so willed, God could indeed, Muhammad Asad says, punish them, but it's not punish them, it's to defeat them. But God wills so that you to struggle so as to test you all by means of one another. Yablu ba'dakum bi'ba'd, to test you against one another. Fascinating orientation, because think about it, right? We are, we are in jihad. Even we are in warfare. But Allah comes and says, don't think the point is victory. Victory is guaranteed for Allah in the hereafter. That's when the actual results of war, if you will, are going to carry me. The point is for you to test you to see how you will perform. And again, Allah repeats that those who ultimately sacrifice themselves, that islah al-bal, which by the way in Sufism takes off in seers to, to great heights because the whole notion of islah al-bal, that, that you know, 
It's like being in a state of repose and tranquility where you're just at peace with yourself and at peace with the world. Um, about just before I, I, uh, I forget and move on, um, um, I, I told you that in Islamic law, there's a huge debate about what happens with prisoners of war and, and, and what rules and what limitations and so on. But um, in, the, in the, Islam, the reports in the Islamic tradition itself tells you that this was a hotly contested issue and a hotly debated issue very early on. Um, so, so for instance, Ilayth ibn Sa'd, in a report by Ilayth ibn Sa'd, he says that I went to Mujahid and told Mujahid, I heard that Ibn Abbas was of the opinion that you cannot execute prisoners of war. And according to the report from Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, he says that then Mujahid said, no, Ibn Abbas is wrong because this ayah about, the, let's talk about this ayah, has been abrogated, Nusikhat. But at, at the same time, we have a report, for instance, from an authority like Ibn Omar, that when Ibn Omar uh, uh, heard that there were prisoners of that, the, it, the report says Al-Hajjaj, that Al-Hajjaj had wanted to execute certain prisoners of war, and Ibn Omar objected. Um, but then Laysa said, This is not the way we do things. And he recited this ayah from Surah Muhammad. Um, although, I mean, these types of reports are, I often call them tension reports because they demonstrate that this was a hotly contested issue in early Muslim society. But the Quranic revelation itself. I mean, it's clear, right? Okay. So, وَلَوْ يَشَاءُ اللَّهُ لَنْتَصَرَ مِنْهُمْ If Allah would have willed, Allah would have defeated them. But that is not the point. Okay. So, then... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Yeah, okay. Then Allah, now this is ayah 7, says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanum, in tansuru Allah yansurakum, wa yuthabbit aqdamakum. So, That affirmation, again, of the very principle that if you are with Allah, Allah is with you. Muhammad Asad translates it as, if you help the cause of God, 
God will help you and will make firm your steps. وَيُثَبِّتْ أَقْدَامَكُمْ That Allah will help you make a firm stand. Often, people when they read this, they think that the Quran is simply saying that Allah will allow you to, to persevere in battle. But Tathbeet Al-Qadam is in battle and beyond battle. And consistent with the message of Surah Muhammad, as we will see, is that Tathbeet Al-Qadam is the sense of resolve and certitude that comes when Allah is truly with you. That Allah helps you to make a firm commitment to the right path and stand by this commitment. Allah gives you certitude Allah helps you escape the demons of doubt and confusion. And that is why Again, so it's like saying but those who follow the other paths Ta'is and Lahum is like saying their fate is a fate full of ta'asa. Ta'asa means sadness, misery, unhappiness. They, they, they will do all types of things, but it was always that repose, that tranquility will always elude them. they will never be the people of nur, of people of light, as the Quran says elsewhere. Anyway, so, yeah, Muhammad as it translates, ill fortune awaits him. It's not ill fortune, it's, it's like saying happiness will elude them. They're, they're just never going to be at peace. Okay. And then a quick reference in 10 that, again, a reminder that, look, it's easy to think that the, that the moment you're living through is everything. But many people have existed before you and we can now say and many people will exist after you. And nation after nation rises and collapses and in this is a lesson if you reflect so, 
فأفلم يسيروا في الأرض فينظروا كيف كان عاقبة الذين من قبلهم Don't they reflect about, about the past? Don't they reflect on the ruins? Don't they ponder the ruins of those who rose in the past? ذلك بأن الله مولى الذين آمنوا أن الكافرين لا مولى لهم Because ultimately Allah is the Mawla. Mawla is like uh, your guardian, your your caretaker. That you that there are either you choose to exist in this life in the care of the divine or outside the care of the divine. Okay. Because those who do not follow the path of Muhammad their existence is indistinguishable from the existence of cattle. In other words, that cattle exist to consume. They consume to exist and exist to consume. And either you pick the paradigm which has meaning, which has islah al-bal, which has Allah as a mawla, or you pick a paradigm in which you exist to exist and you consume to exist and you exist to consume. And then it's exactly, you are like a consuming creature without meaning. And then this ayah 13 No, wait, uh, I skipped something. Yeah, uh, yeah, I skipped nine. Notice nine. ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ كَرِهُوا مَا أَنْظَلَ اللَّهِ فَأَحْبَطَ أَعْمَالَهُمْ Now, that expression, كَرِهُوا مَا أَنْظَلَ اللَّهِ Because they... It's one is tempted to translate karihu as they hate what God has revealed, but it's not that karihu ma Allah is to um, is to if you are sort of turned off by something that's karah to It's like when we say something is makruh. Is disfavored, disliked. It, it, although in modern Arabic, we we call we refer to hate as kura. In classical Arabic, in older Arabic, bughd was described hate. Kura is which means you're you're sort of dislike it, or you're turned off by it. 
So it doesn't need to rise to the level of hate. Is precisely as Surah Muhammad will, will refer is are those who basically are even becoming impatient with the revelation. The Quran keeps imposing duties and obligations upon us. The Quran keeps demanding things. They've, they've, their commitment is confused because their relationship to the Quran is confused. And thus their relationship to Muhammad himself is confused. And because of that, again, so because of that, they are down the wrong path, down the repass of lack of meaning or the path of meaninglessness. Lack of meaning. Okay. So then, then the reference after that to, well, you know, th- those who, it's either you exist with a meaning, for a meaning, or you exist like cattle, simply consuming without meaning. Then 13, what Kayin min Koryatin here, Ashadukua, min Koryatika Lati Khrajatk. A quick reference to the prophets and Alisatoslam and saying that, you know, Allah knows the people who forced you out of your homes. And The context of, of, of this ayah is, 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 you know, these people at the time, the, especially the, the critics, the hypocrites, think that Mecca is the center of power as they understand it. And Allah is saying, you know, there are, as far as oppressors go, well, there are far more powerful oppressors than that the people who oppressed you, Muhammad, and your followers. And look at their fate. So in in the moment in which you exist, you're tempted to think that the odds are as you perceive them. But again, the point is not for you to achieve victory. The point is for you to pass the test. Um, before I move on, just uh, I remember the, a couple of things. Um, one of the things that I've read, and I don't remember where I read it, but it stuck with me and stayed with me. Um, فَمَنْ كَانَ um, فَمَنْ كَانَ فِي أَكْلِهِ نَاسِيًا لِرَبِّهِ فَأَكْلُهُ كَأَكْلِ الْأَنْعَامِ 
if you eat, if you consume a meal, if you consume a meal, if you eat, and as you eat, you don't remember that this is a gift from Allah, then you are consuming like cattle. Your consumption is the consumption of cattle. The reason this stayed with me is part, of course, you know, this is developed in, in Sufi discourses. To God consciousness in everything you do, the distinction between I am, I am grazing like an animal or I'm eating like a human, is God consciousness. Um, okay, so the other thing, karihu ma anzalallah Wait, no. Okay. Anyway, I've read, and this isn't, I mean, the same point is made in several places that the expression, that there is recognizable, pronounced Quran. You know, something that you dislike and you know you dislike. And a kurhul khafi, subtle or hidden kurha, meaning what turns you off. Tilaf is shahawat. Being accustomed to fulfilling your desires or your whims or your passions. Or ulfat al-shahawat. So if if you are sort of addicted to consumption, you are accustomed to fulfilling whatever you desire, and the Quran comes and stands between you and what you have trained yourself to enjoy. And you know that the Quran makes the relationship to your addiction uncomfortable. That's Qurhu, that's Qurha, ma anzalallah. That you will in turn Find yourself uncomfortable with revelation. So, I this was Sheikh Haid Allah Yerhamu They just stayed with me. What, what, there was a guy who um, 
stolen Sheikh Haid. When I read the Quran, it makes me very uncomfortable. Why does it make you very uncomfortable? And he said, because it's constantly talking about hellfire and punishment. And at the time, you know, I didn't fully understand what Sheikh Haid meant by it, but it stayed with me. And I think now it's sort of... Uh, and the, uh, Sheikh Haid said, what you're uncomfortable with It told this guy what look or scrutinize or reflect upon what things you are accustomed to that make the mention of hellfire so uncomfortable to you. In other words, yes, the mention of hellfire is bothering you, but it's bothering you because of who you are not because of what the Quran is. Because the Quran, every time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never mentions hellfire without mentioning the opposite of hellfire, Jannah. It, as many times as Allah mentions hellfire, it mentions the Jannah. You can, the mention of Jannah can comfort you and the mention of hellfire can bother you. But it depends on who you are. You could be comforted or you could be alarmed. And that's who you are. Karihu ma anzalallah. You see, it's such a small expression. Okay. Now, notice, then we have Fourteen and fifteen. Fifteen, yeah. It's segue where it, it it referenced to Jannah and Hellfire. But notice here what it says: "Mathalu Jannati lati wa'idha al-muttaqun." Mathalu Jannah. Normally. In a lot of tafsir, the way they understand, the way that they talk about Mathal Jannah is that they say the nature of Jannah that people have been promised is X, Y, Z. And then it mentions hellfire with this parallelism that you constantly see in the Quran. But a minority of commentators noticed that this is the first time that the Quran in the same way tells us 
understand, and by the way, in, in, I should have said uh, in Ibn Arabi, um, the, the use of the reference to the, 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 the juxtapositions in life as amthal, as parables, unleashed thinkers like Ibn Arabi and even Mullah Sadr to think about w- w- the nature of reality itself. But that that's a, that takes us into you know a whole different realm. But notice here, this is the first time that the Allah talks about Jannah and says, Mathalu Jannah. Now you can understand method as the nature, or you can understand it as a minority if of people understood it as the parable of Jannah. So now Allah explicitly tells us, understand that what I am telling you about Jannah, that sweet water that flows and milk and wine and honey, all of these are parables to bring concepts closer to your mind. You can understand them literally if this is the way your spirit works. But you can understand them profoundly as parables that describe a reality that is not familiar to you. Okay. So this is 15. Let, let's stop here to take a three-minute break and then continue. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I I wish my my uh, part of my dua often yeah pretty much every night that this part of me that uh, wishes I could live my life solely and completely dedicated to studying the Qur'an. If I had my way, I would do nothing but be a servant of the Qur'an. Uh, Because there is a lot, not just Islamophobia, not just Islamophobia. And by the way, Islamophobia has resulted in, in... the, the explosion of atheism in Muslim countries. I, I've never encountered the, the number of atheists in countries like Egypt and Syria and Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Iraq. Um, 
But then there are now very dangerous ideas coming from Syrian intellectuals, Lebanese intellectuals, Egyptian intellectuals, Iranian intellectuals that basically argue that the Quran is not um, divine, that um, they claim to be Muslim and and they basically argue the Quran is uh, is uh, divinely sort of like basically divinely inspired, but it is human. It is through Muhammad. It is Muhammad's words and uh, Muhammad's ideas and his his own subjective personality and. Um, and you bet, I mean, these people think they're, they're being, you know, autonomous, daring intellectuals, but absolutely they are a byproduct of, uh, you know, the, the hating Qaeda, hating ISIS, hating Islamophobia, hate, and, and overcome with enormous amount of doubts that they can't resolve in their mind, and so it comes out in this form. And uh, SubhanAllah, I mean, it just, um, it is what it is. Okay. Now, notice 16. وَمِنْهُمْ So, now we get to what Surah Muhammad is responding to directly. And it's talk, it says, that there are some of them, the, the some of them that it's talking about are those people that I mentioned earlier, the people who are wishy-washy and they are talking to the, to the critics of Muhammad and saying, well, you know, you know, we we we're Muslim, but we're not going. We we are not going to go along with uh, all this warfare stuff. <clears throat> and so it says, and there are those of them who listen to you. So when they are present, or the Prophet is Alaihissalam, they listen to, him. but then they go lilladina utul ilm. Who are Ladina Utulain? Then they go to the companions of Muhammad, those who are, in other words, they don't say it directly to your face, but they say it with those close to you. And what is it that they say? They say, 
ماذا قال آنفة؟ Oh, what is he saying now? ماذا قال آنفة is derogatory. It's like saying, oh my God. So now, okay, so what is he saying now? So their attitude towards Quranic revelation is exactly what I was talking about earlier. It's this, it's dismissive and it treats the Quran as a burden. So they are karihuma anzalallah. They claim to be Muslim. They even pretend in the presence of the Prophet that they're friendly. But behind his back, they go, and we have reports that they would say it was Ibn Mas'ud. We have reports that they would say it was Anas. They, uh, we have reports that they, they said this was Abu Bakr. We have reports that they said this was Ali. Uh, that, oh, God, what is he saying now? Is he going to tell us to, you know, spend our money again? Is he going to tell us that if, if we have to commit to fighting in, in Allah's ways? You know, what is it now? So it's like, even one of those, you know, oh, it never ends. This just doesn't stop. Um, and Allah says, clear, these are the people, these are the people who, although claiming they are with you, in fact, they are subservient to their whims. Seventeen. Those who are willing to be God increases their ability to follow God's guidance and causes them to grow in God's consciousness. But that's Muhammad Asad. That. And as to those who, in fact, are committed, that Allah aids them to achieve a higher level of consciousness. I think translating it as God consciousness is actually a good idea. Meaning that Allah helps them be God conscious. And then 18, فَهَلْيَنْظُرُونَ إِلَّا السَّاعَةَ أَنْ تَأْتِينَ Bakhtar, that, that the, the final, the only thing I'll say about 18 is فَقَدْ جَاءَ أَشْرَاتُهَا فَأَنَّ لَهُمْ إِذَا جَاءَتْهُمْ ذِكْرَاهُمْ That um, some translations, some Quranic interpretations say فَقَدْ جَاءَ أَشْرَاتُهَا say, well, what this means is that the signs of the coming of the of uh, the hereafter have been in fact fulfilled that all the signs have been fulfilled so you know just the the final hour is at the turn of of um, the corner 
doesn't necessarily mean that um, the conditions or the signs or the, the final hour have been fulfilled, but it, it, grammatically, it could be read as its signs will be fulfilled. And that's the interpretation that I prefer. Let's see what Muhammad Assad says. Um, oh, Muhammad Assad says, but it has already been foretold, which is reasonable. The, and I think Muhammad Assad probably has, you know, issues about Ashrat as conditions of the of the hereafter. Uh, but anyway. Muhammad Asad translates it as it's as it has already been foretold. I, I think the, the, you might as well. It could be translated as its conditions have been foretold, or its conditions will be fulfilled. In my view, at least. Okay. Then فَعَلَمْ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ مُتَقَلَّبَكُمْ مُتَقَلَّبَكُمْ وَمَثْوَاكُمْ This is 19. So, know, and this is, when you say know means an affirmation of something, know that there is no deity but God, and while there is yet time, ask forgiveness, for your sins and for the sins of all other believing men and women. For God knows all your comings and goings as well as your abiding at rest. Um, there is a discussion in the Tafsir where it says, فَعْلَمْ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ So know that there is no God save for God. Is it saying to the Prophet Muhammad, know such and such, and so do istighfar and ask Allah to forgive also the believing women and men? Or is it talking to humans at large? And I think it's clear that it's talking to humans at large because it wouldn't be telling to the Prophet Muhammad it's, it's very unlikely that it's saying to Prophet, no Prophet, that there is, the Prophet knows that. So the message, I think, is to us. But if the message is to us, then, as many Quranic commentators have noted, that the instruction or God's advice, if you want islah al-bal, if you want the purity of soul and serenity of nafs, that you ask Allah for forgiveness for your sins, but you don't stop there. You are not a Muslim, a real Muslim, unless you also care about your fellow Muslims. And you also care that Allah forgives your fellow Muslims. Which in the age of selfishness is hard because we are raised to always think of ourselves and maybe the ones we care about, 
But the idea that Allah wants you, well, Allah could forgive, Allah doesn't need your prayers. Allah wants you to pray for you, to, to purify and cleanse your soul. And for the purification and cleansing of your soul, you have to be more than just about yourself. And to purify this heart so that your heart cares, remembers to say, Allah forgive al-mu'minina wal-mu'minat. Allah forgive the believers. Okay. So, then 20, Surah Muhammad continues and, and addressing the, the crux of the problem and says that there was, at, at the time in Medina, Sort of a, a, um, a sort of a social norm, if you will, that had emerged, and that is believers would often be animated and excited once new revelation comes. So they would always say, "Oh, new revelation arrived! New revelation arrived!" This group that we're talking about, the problematic group, would often join in pretending to publicly, at least, outwardly, especially around the prophet. I would say, oh, new revelation arrived. Oh, we want to hear it. We want to hear it. But then... Once they hear it, say, oh, what now? And then sort of the, the derision starts. So, So that Allah would recognize that there is sort of generally, like, oh, well, it would be great. Whatever revelation we're receiving is great. It would be wonderful. But... When what they're concerned about, what they're worried about, is revelation in which al-qital fighting is mentioned. And when a revelation that mentions fighting does indeed come, رَأَيْتَ الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ يَنْظُرُونَ إِلَيْكَ نَظَرَ الْمَخْشِيِّ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ those people who have an illness, a sickness in their heart, they look at you as if they are about to faint from fear. فَأَوْلَى لَهُمْ طَاعَةٌ وَقَوْلٌ مَعْرُوفٌ فَإِذَا عَزَمَ الْأَمْرُ فَلَوْ صَدَّقُوا اللَّهَ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ Of course, Allah says, you know, if 
Azam al-Amru means if in fact they are confronted with the challenge that action is needed, Azam al-Amr, action will be undertaken. And they would have accepted the fact that they need to commit and sacrifice. But the, the problem is with these folks is they fear the revelation that would impose obligations and duties upon them that require sacrifices. When, in fact, revelation comes that makes clear that there's no around the necessity of engaging in something that might cost them their lives, leave alone much of what they own, if not everything they own, they freak out. And when they freak out, although with you, Muhammad, they pretend that they're okay with it, but what they do afterwards is so doubt and, you know, this sort of um, sleazy path of going off and talking to this group and say, you know, oh, we're not going to commit to warfare, we're not in with them, and so on and so forth. Now, remarkably, 22, notice, فَإِذَا عَسَيْتُمْ In some Qur'an, عَسَيْتُمْ But anyway, فَإِذَا فَهَلْ عَسَيْتُمْ وَعَسَيْتُمْ فَهَلْ عَسَيْتُمْ إِنْ تَوَلَّيْتُمْ أَنْ تُفْسِدُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَتُقَطِّعُوا أَرْحَامَكُمْ Allah comes and says, in again, one of these like references in the Qur'an that is very striking, that, you know, if you are not firm in your commitment, in the path of Muhammad, you're with them for better or for worse in accepting the type of sacrifices that are being demanded of you and committing firmly what will be your fate? Your fate is to your fate will be that you will go back to spreading corruption on earth um, let's go 22 if you turn away you will revert Muhammad Asad says you will revert to your old ways and spread corruption on earth and once again cut asunder your ties of kinship doesn't necessarily say you will return you will return to your old ways it simply says that if you turn away from making this commitment 
your fate will be as in the commentary say to Sidu Fiha Bazulm that you will drown in injustice, spilling each other's blood. Meaning that even sacred bonds between you will be violated. Violated not necessarily by simple by spilling blood, but even violated through injustice. So it, by stealing from one another, by not caring for one another, to meaning the the bonds of decency, sacred bonds between you that ought to be honored will not be honored. Now we in our day and age we can understand this I think even more profoundly than at the time it was revealed. Because we see the consequences of having turned away from a firm commitment to making the types of sacrifices that Surah Muhammad is saying, either you're going to commit and make the necessary sacrifices and look at what we live in today. Precisely that. You drown in corruption, in ifsadful ard, in injustice and misery and hardship and inequity. And all decency has decomposed and broken down. Okay. Those who Allah has truly forsaken. And so Allah has allowed them to become deaf and blind. Okay. Notice. And 24. Look at this. This the capacity of the Quran to speak to its moment and speak eternally at the same time. So it comes and says, don't they ponder the Quran? Don't they study the Quran? Or is it that it is as if they have locks, shackles upon their hearts. And again, imagine yourself receiving the revelation at this time. And the Quran is not even complete yet. And the Prophet Muhammad is there with you. And the Quran is telling you, you need to live with an intimate relationship with the Quran. And you need to figure out how that relationship can be built upon an, a heart that is open to receiving the Quran, not a heart that is locked. It's, it's like saying, it is, you could go down a path where the Quran becomes 
inaccessible to you. Your hearts become locked up, not open to the Quran. If you do not make the type of commitment and sacrifices that the Quran is telling you to make, if you don't realize this paradigmatic division between the path that Muhammad embodies and any other path, um, there is a, a narrative report that there was a, a delegation from Yemen that arrived in Medina and they, they were interested in Islam and wanted to hear from the Prophet about Islam. So the, um, the Prophet recited Surah Muhammad to them. And there was a young man, I don't remember his name, um, with that Yemeni delegation when he when it, the prophet reached this point um ala qulubin aqfaluha he commented yaftahuha allah wa yufarrijuha his comment was well may allah open these hearts and unleash them or expand them to, to fully receive the Quran. And that Umar ibn Khattab heard this and it stayed with him. That comment stayed with him because he recognized the, 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 um, the insightful nature of someone who responds to the Quran that way. Until Omar became a Khalifa, he found he went searching for this kid again. I can't remember his name in Yemen, and then appointed him to a position. This is sort of a um, look at the difference between people who invest in human beings. You, you sort of you, you look for the promising human being. And you go and utilize them from people who exactly represent the opposite ethic, where you know a human being is only only the value of a human being is only the, in relation to what you can gain from them or what you can get from them, rather than what they represent as an ideal, as a as a principle, as a value. Okay. Forgotten anything. إن الذين ارتدوا على أدبارهم من بعد ما تبين لهم الهدى الشيطان سول لهم وأملى لهم ذلك بأنهم قالوا للذين كرهوا ما نزل الله ما نزل الله سنطيعكم في بعض الأمر والله يعلم إسرارهم 
فكيف إذا توفتهم الملائكة يضربون وجوههم وأدبارهم ذلك بأنهم اتبعوا ما أسخط الله وكرهوا رضوانه فأحبط أعمالهم So notice then the ayah goes back to talking about that the, those who converted to Islam and what is the the the, the problem with these with these people those who had converted to Islam but then became misled by shaitan in 26 قالوا للذين كرهوا ما نزل الله سنطيعكم في بعض الأمر. You know those people who, of course, I mean maybe I shouldn't pay attention to. Every now and now and then I get a, a silly message from some person who say, says, why do you need to all the to, to all the study to understand the Quran? Isn't the Quran just? I mean I don't know if these people have even read the Quran. I mean if you were saying, isn't the Quran just so? clear that anyone should be able to understand it. I mean, have you actually read the Quran? Have you actually leave alone memorized it? Um, but an ayah like 26, you, there's, unless you understand the context, say, they tell, they tell um, those who oppose what Allah has revealed, we will obey you in some matters. What is it talking about? Well, that's why you need a rasikhuna fil That's why you need scholarship. Because you then understand that what it's talking about is what I was describing earlier, is that they would go because they're, they're, they, are, they are after the Battle of Uhud, they are resistant to any obligations, and especially obligations that have to do with the sacrifices that would be needed for warfare. So, and they're not willing to say we're not Muslim. But they're not really committed as Muslims. So what they do is they go to especially the Jewish tribes and say, well, you know what, and in other words, those who are not Muslim, and say, well, we're going to stay Muslim, but we can work with you. We can accommodate you in opposing the trajectory that Muhammad and his people are pursuing. So And what they are specifically sort of coming to special agreements 
with the opponents of Muslims about is working with them in saying, we're not going to support the war effort. Either we are not going to spend to support the war effort, but often that we are not going to support any commitment to what the Quran is demanding of us when it comes to war. Okay. And obviously Allah says that, you know, they, they, they engage in these talks behind your backs, but Allah knows about it. And notice 27, which again, we've encountered this in Surah Al-Anfal, where Allah mentions that there are those people upon their deaths, what, what I refer to as the image from that movie Ghost, that the angels will, will be slapping them and beating them as they collect their souls. That they will be slapping them and hitting their adbar, their, their behinds, or hitting you from the back. Um, okay. 29. That they are hiding their opposition, their discomfort, their 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 anger, their their um, their ill feelings, and they think that they can keep these feelings concealed. But that Allah in fact will cause these ill feelings to come up to the forefront. Now thirty Allah is telling the Prophet, if Allah would have willed, Allah would simply tell you who these people are. Allah would reveal to you by name who these people are. There is an apocryphal report that unfortunately once I heard being taught in a mosque by an engineer or yeah, he was an engineer. Um, that the Prophet ﷺ, after the revelation of Surah Muhammad, uh, gathered all the Muslims, and then he prayed with them, and then after prayer, he stood up and he said, I will call a the name of a bunch of people, and when I call the names of these people, stand up. And then he called their names, and then he said, you know, all of them stood up, and he said, Allah told me that all of you guys are hypocr the hypocrites. 
I spent, I wasted a considerable amount of time investigating this report, and it's entirely apocryphal. I mean, the, the number of problems that, that um, and it's inconsistent with, with the letter of the revelation of the Quran. If Allah would have willed, Allah would have told you, which obviously, but Allah didn't will. So, but Allah then tells the Prophet Muhammad and us, tells people forever, you want to know who they are? When you make mistakes in Arabic grammar, they call that lahn. But that expression lahn it's as an expression, it's like saying in wishy-washy lahna qawl is maghza qawl or fahwa qawl or maqsad qawl that when you hear something and you hear people making excuses not to do the right thing so so, for instance, examples often given of lahna qawl is saying, well, why should I help the poor? If Allah wanted, Allah wouldn't have made them poor. Something that you know is forced logic because when Allah tells you help the poor a million times and then you philosophize ignoring what Allah says, that's lahna qawl. Or an example of lahna qawl saying, well, you know, an example actually in our modern age, well, we shouldn't help the Palestinians because they sold their, their land. They sold their country. It's very disingenuous. Because even if you can point to a few examples, one or two or three, we all know about the the. the displacement of Palestinians, the massacres committed by Zionist terrorists, and the expulsion of Palestinians from the... We, it's been documented in, in, in million sources. We all know the fact that Palestinians, these people were living in this land for centuries, and that where they were kicked out by people who were coming from Russia and Europe and, you know, escaping the Holocaust, etc., etc., etc. When you come and you twist logic to try to justify the unjustifiable, that's lahna qawl. 
Similarly, when you come to a country like the United Arab Emirates and that has created a ministry of tolerance and its prisons are full, its political prisons are full of prisoners, horrible human rights record, and you come and say, no, but it's a country of happiness and tolerance and you ignore all the human beings rotting in Emirati prisons, that's lahna qawl. Do you remember, there's a khutbah I said, this is how truth sounds like. There's a khutbah where I said, this is how truth sounds like. What I was thinking of when I said that is this ayah. There is things that you hear, you know that you can only accept if you give way to, to the devil. And they always have, as, as I think it was Al-Ghazali who said, they always have to do with justifying injustice. It's not, I'm not talking about an opinion or perspective. I am talking about, as Ghazali said, Lahna called a modern Ghazali, my sheikh, not the old Ghazali, that it is always Lahna called has to do with justifying injustice or the betrayal of a victim of injustice. So Allah has chosen not to reveal who they are by name to the Prophet But Allah tells the Prophet and Muslims in perpetuity, perpetuity that you can know who the hypocrites are. Those who refuse to make commitments or sacrifices. Why? Because they don't want to stand with what is just and right. And they use words to obfuscate and confuse and justify what is wrong. Then Allah says, 31, and remember that again, if Allah would have willed, because the question would immediately beg itself, well, why does Allah just tell us who the hypocrites are? Especially at the time of Muhammad alayhi It says, this is not the point. Yeah, Allah could just vanquish them. Allah could make them all disappear. Allah could you know, clean house in an instant, doesn't need you. But that is not the point. The point, that we test you and afflict you so that we know who amongst you are the mujahideen and the sabirin. That is the point. But in the Ladina Kafur, was Sodu and Sabili La, was Shakur Rasul, 
من بعد ما تبين لهم الهدى لا يضر الله شيئا وسيحبط اعمالهم of course at the time Allah gives this assurance to his prophet you know those who مشاقت الله والرسول those who when you we encountered Mushaqatillah, the same expression in fell. And again, remember that when you talk about those who Shaqillah or Rasul are those who stand at opposite ends from what Allah and His Prophet is all about. So today, when I look, for instance, at some Muslims and I see that they have, are supporting Islamophobes or supporting the Muslim ban or you know there are certain positions and things that only man Rasul can take because a lot of people come and say you know well you know can't we just all get along and you know why attack fellow Muslims because the fact that they're Muslims is is a technicality that I don't care about what does it mean to say Ashhadu la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah but then say oh you know we are going to put our you know we're going to uh, put our hands in the hands of the Israelis you know in allowing to kill Palestinians at will steal Palestinians home at will you know steal Jerusalem uh, in order to defeat our fellow Muslims the Iranians I mean that sh- if that is not Mushaqatillah or Rasul standing at opposite ends of the Prophet of, of Allah and His Prophet, I don't know what is. You are allying yourselves with non-Muslim oppressors against fellow Muslims, and then saying somehow it, it should be forgiven because you're technically a Muslim. Or same, by the way, like when um, um, same thing, you know, when you find a, 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 a today a, a so-called someone who claims to be a Muslim, a president, who goes when with everything the French are doing against Muslims, and with maligning and slandering the prophet and the French government embracing that discourse by displaying the offensive cartoons on French governmental buildings and then the president of a Muslim country goes, flies to France to assure France of friendly relations and buy French weaponry and sign financial deals, economic deals with France and then you discover that the French, in collusion with the Egyptian government, have adopted an anti-refugee policy to preempt those who are trying to go from Libya into Europe as refugees by the French government and the Egyptian government collaborating to murder these people as they're trying to cross from Egypt to Libya and killing by conservative estimates 47 and by more realistic estimates 46 
thousand human beings. And then you find Muslims that sit there and say, oh, massacre at Rabah, man. These are were terrorists because there were jihad in Nikah, because of the Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, you know, 100,000 political prisoners and torture and rape. Well, you know, the, the government is in a war with terrorism. Uh, oh, well, you know, massacring people in Sina. Well, you know, threat of terrorism. Uh, well, you know, everything that you strike, excuses, including the murdering now of these 40,000 people. And again, these people still defend a regime, a fascist regime like Sisi's. In what way are they, is it critical that they're Muslim? In what way? I mean, either you have morals and values and ethics, or it's a divorce. Or we're not, we are not following the same understanding of a prophet. To you, the prophet Muhammad represents something very different than what the Prophet Muhammad represents to, for me. Okay. And this, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, atiyahu Allah, wa atiyahu rasul, wa la tubtilu a'malakum. So th- this affirmation in 33, Obey Allah, obey the Prophet, wa la tubtilu a'malakum. There are there are reports that when this ayah was revealed, companions of the Prophet ﷺ, those were the real Muslims, the real Muslims, freaked out because they said they said we believed up to this point. I mean, these reports again have the air of medieval exaggeration, but a kernel of truth that. We believe that Shahada guarantees that Allah will accept our amal until the revelation of this ayah. That until this ayah was revealed, when this ayah was revealed, we started worrying that certain misdeeds can result in Allah not accepting our amal. Of course, you know, again, with a grain of salt, but the point being is that you could be officially, technically a Muslim, but because of the lack of commitment in terms of your value system and in terms of your course of conduct, Ultimately, Allah would not accept from you because you did not choose to commit yourself to the right paradigm in the right way. And then Allah affirms the same concept that the surah started with. الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَصَدُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ مَاتُوا وَهُمْ كُفَّارُ فَلَا يَغْفِرَ اللَّهُ لَهُمْ 
Now, here, there is a debate that is generated in the sources. Because notice, if you read this ayah in the context of the entire discourse, it would appear that Allah is describing those hypocrites that say we are Muslim, but yet go and conspire with non-Muslims, or they go and they, they in fact are resistant or dismissive or impatient karihu, Allah, with what Allah reveals. So it's not that their lack of commitment is a result of weakness that they regret and a weakness that they are ashamed about, but in fact a result of a conscious decision not to be properly committed, that it seems here that they're described ultimately they are engaged in a sudud an sabilillah. What they're doing is obstructionist in terms of what Allah wants from the Muslim Ummah. What is the total the, the net result of what they're doing? Is they're obstructing. You know, they're trying to encourage others not to follow what the Prophet is saying, not to do what the Prophet is telling them to do, not to join the battles, not to support the war ever obstructing. That they're ultimately described as kuffar. I don't remember who was it that commented. I think it was in Ahya who commented and said, well, the choice, whether it goes, it says, which is worse, to be a monafic or a kafir? And it basically says there is no material difference, that a monafic is a kafir and kafir is a monafic. Um, in fact, a monafic in many ways is worse than a kafir. At least a kafir you know, commits to I don't believe and is consistent with that. But a munafiq is not just, it's treacherous, a ultimately dishonest, a liar. Okay. That they will not be forgiven. And there is, there is most commenters say, yeah, he, Allah is calling them, those people that have engaged in this conduct, ultimately kuffar. And then a, a minority said, well, we can't go as far as calling them kuffar. This ayah is talking about kuffar, not talking about the hypocrites, which is not very convincing, but anyway. فَلَا تَهِنُوا وَتَدْعُوا إِلَى السِّلْمِ وَأَنْتُمُ الْأَعْلَوْنَ وَاللَّهُ مَعْكُمْ وَلَنْ يَتِرَكُمْ أَعْمَالَكُمْ Okay. This is now 35. So don't weaken and it is it's why is it fascinating? First, you know, it says okay, don't weaken and and call for peace 
or non-aggression. I'm just curious uh, how Muhammad Asad dealt with this. 35. Um, so Muhammad Asad says, and what, uh, so do not lose heart and never beg for peace, for seeing that God is with you, you are bound to rise high in the end. And never will God let your good deeds go to waste. It, Muhammad Asad's translate, uh, 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 translation is closer to my understanding. Is that don't weaken and so for peace it is not saying because you are high or some the way some interpreters understood this verse and is in a very pragmatic way so it's it basically the way they understood it is saying as long as you are the powerful party don't go for peace the implication here is that if you are not the powerful party then go ahead it's okay to sow for peace but that very real politic pragmatic understanding of the verse is not born by the context by by the the nature of the narrative because it is revealed at a time after Uhud where Muslims are not alone they're not the powerful party in fact they're an oppressed highly disempowered party so how could be Allah is telling them well you are the powerful party so don't go for peace doesn't make any sense what does make sense is Allah is saying there is a principle here and as long as there is the cause that requires you not to accept peace then in fact you cannot accept peace in other words as long as there is an imperative to stand and fight for your cause and if you do so then you will be alone then Allah will aid you and you will be the honored party this goes this is consistent with the message of the surah itself that if you don't do this you will revert to fasad fil ard and al arham if you don't if you are not if you don't have resolve if you don't have strength the the reason allah asks you to fight is not because allah loves fighting but because the nature of bala the nature of human beings testing one another requires you to stand firm for principle to stand up for a cause put differently only the strong can truly sow for peace 
The weak cannot afford peace. When the weak go for peace, it becomes oppression. But the strong, because peace is a harder battle than war. Peace is a far more challenging battle than war. So, don't weaken. Now, notice in Surah Al-Anfal, Al-Anfal what we were, what Allah said, is that if your enemy is the one that vows for peace, then you may reciprocate. But when your enemy is not vowing for peace, when your enemy is continuing on a course of aggression, continues to oppress you, then then you can't. The message of the Quran is very coherent and systematic, which again emphasizes that it is not warfare for its own sake. Okay. Then... Allah reminds us why are these sacrifices appropriate? Well, إِنَّمَا الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا لَعِبُوا وَلَهُ وَإِن تُؤْمِنُوا وَتَطَّقُوا يُؤْتِكُمْ أُجُورَكُمْ وَلَا يَسْأَلْكُمْ أَمْوَالَكُمْ Here is a very critical point. This life is but live, walahu, is but play and just. It, it, the life that you take so seriously is actually not serious at all. This is not the real life. Now, وَإِن تُؤْمِنُوا وَتَطَّقُوا يُؤْتِكُمْ أُجُورَكُمْ وَلَا يَسْأَلْكُمْ أَمْوَالَكُمْ This is the continuation of 36. Let's see how I translate So, uh, and... Muhammad Asad says, and if you believe in God and are conscious of God, God will grant you your deserts. And withal, God does not demand of you to sacrifice in God's cause all of your possessions. That translation is close to how a lot of Quranic commentators understood this verse. That If you believe, Allah will get you your desserts. And then they understand it as sort of as a full stop. And then a new sort of idea or a new thought. And God does not, God is not asking you to sacrifice all of your money. But the problem with that is that if you, in all the qiraat, there is no full stop and there is no new thought. So 
how can we understand it as a continuing thought? So, if you believe and and you are in fact committed, Allah will reward you. And and what Allah is demanding that you sacrifice is not your money. So a minority, which I agree with, that what Allah is asking you to sacrifice is indeed not your money. Meaning, it's Allah's money. That you think this is your money, but it's not yours. The other thing, which uh, is that if you do not make the necessary sacrifices, it could also be understood, but it was a less natural reading, that if you do not make the natural, the necessary sacrifices, in fact, the cost will be your entire wealth, although that's not as a natural reading of the grammatically. Then, in the next ayah, 37, Okay. Now, so, if, if you have proper taqwa, you will understand that what you are being asked to sacrifice is not, in fact, yours. In the Quranic commentators, commentators, the, you know, a lot of them, they'll say, oh, well, you know, what it means is that Allah is only asking you to sacrifice a part of your money, but I, I don't think that that is borne by the context. In fact, if you have in your mind that this is indeed your money that you are being asked to sacrifice. In other words, if you don't have the proper attitude towards what you are being asked to sacrifice, it is inevitable that what the result will be is not just that you will have a very hard time letting go in other words, making the necessary sacrifices. But that what the inevitable result will be is that you will become resentful and entitled. Everything ugly will come out because you 
ultimately believe this is yours and where you are be you are being asked to sacrifice what is yours and so you want to understand the attitude of these people that are saying oh what does he want now what what quran has come down now what you want to understand them understand why they became this way because unlike a lot of the companions who are happy to give everything these people haven't made that leap they still think of it's mine it's my entitlement why does he want it how much am i being asked to sacrifice how much am i giving precisely go back to the message of surah al-umran if you and al-anfal especially al-anfal if you are focused on what you've given and what you're entitled to get back yukhrij adghanakum it's precisely that then all your ugliness will come out every bit of how ugly you are as a human being will come out ha antum haula tud'awna litunfiqu fi sabilillah fa minkum man yabkhal so now understand you are being called to yes no way around it allah wants you to spend to support the 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 cause there are inevitably some of you who are who are yeah who become stingy and say no i don't i don't want to part with what i have but understand that whoever adopts that attitude yabkhal fa inma yabkhal an nafsi in other words the results the consequences are upon him and him alone this person doesn't realize it but the failure to sacrifice and to give is actually upon him or her it's not about the cause but about their own ugliness because ultimately allahu ghani wa antum al fuqara allah doesn't need your sacrifices and here now notice wa in tatawallaw yastabdila qauman ghayrakum thumma la yakunu amthalakum oh my god because you know what if you don't sacrifice allah will replace you with others and they will not be like you there is a very interesting report by the way that you never hear among modern muslims today because of the influence of saudi um about this ayah I'm not saying it's authentic but I'm saying that there it's it's uh, it's um it was widely reported until uh the Saudi age of Islam um that the prophet ali sallallahu alaihi wasallam is asked okay so you're saying if 
the, the, the Surah Muhammad is saying that if you don't rise to the occasion, Allah will make you fail and will replace you with another people. And the Prophet said yes. And he said, well, who are the people who will replace us? And the Prophet says, Al-Furs, Persians. Uh, of course, the, the Saudis have made sure that no one ever hears <laughs> this report. But there's actually another version of it where, where the Prophet then points to Salman al-Farisi and pats his knee and says, his people, uh, so that the Persians will be the inheritors of Islam and will do what uh, uh, the, the Arabs have ultimately failed to do. Um, So, Surat Muhammad, you pause. You say, why is it Surat Muhammad? After the Battle of Uhud, and after Especially, remember that before the Battle of Uhud, there was a withdrawal of at least one-third of the army. And those people who withdrew, when they went back to Medina, they said, well, see, we were wise. We knew that this wasn't going to go well. That's why we didn't, we withdrew. And... If you're sleazy and unprincipled and confused, the natural tendency is to say, well, wait, maybe these people had a point. And especially when the Jewish tribes now are secretly going out and being in contact with the Meccans, they are contacting Benul Mustalik, these other tribes that are hostile to, and saying, you know, Muhammad is a, is, a, is a big problem, and, you know, maybe we can work with you to get rid of him. And there is this mass of people that were at, when, when they received the Meccan Muhajirun, they were asked to sacrifice. Yes, there were people who were very happy to sacrifice, but there were also people who were not happy to sacrifice. They were asked to share their livelihoods and their homes and their wealth and their jobs. And on top of that, now there is a warfare. And on top of that, the Battle of Uhud and spoils you know, the Quran tells them it's not about spoils, so it's not even about money. And then Uhud comes and it's a loss, and they start becoming like Muslims of today. Why should we give? You know, I'm not going to pay for his salary. You know, the, the type of nasty, entitled arrogance that you hear from people. 
and mine, mine, mine. And the Quran comes at this point and says, listen, there's, there's a paradigmatic choice. You are either clearly with Muhammad because this is not just, this is about a way of life And you understand that what you are being called upon to do at this historical moment that you are in is make the ultimate sacrifice. You are either in or you're out. Or as far as this prophet is concerned, You are, your fate is as good as kuffar. He's not going to treat you as kuffar as a matter of law, but God is going to treat you as kuffar. And understand, it's either people make these commit to a, to a principled life and rise up to the sacrifices that are called upon them to make, or their fate is the faith that Surah Muhammad describes, which we live today. And learn to recognize to recognize those people who, you know, speak to justify the unjustifiable. people who try to defend not sacrificing and not living for a principle. Because ultimately, what is at stake here is that either you rise up to the challenge or our law will replace you. That coming very bluntly and affirming again the idea there are no chosen people. There are no entitlements. So Surah Muhammad has been described as the most succinct, compact proclamation of what Muhammad embodies, the path of Muhammad. What was Muhammad about? And so I say, I've always thought Surah Muhammad is about Sirat Muhammad. Sirat Muhammad, the Sirah of this man, was about principles and sacrifices. Don't tell me you follow the Sunnah or the Sirah if you don't understand the principles that this man stood for and the sacrifices that this man stood for. Don't even pretend you follow Muhammad 
unless you understand the values that he embodied. What tadabbur Quran is, what understanding the Quran is, and the sacrifices that he is that he embodied. Because if not, then we are in the paradigm of replacement. That Allah replaces you, and they will not be like you. Um, one final note, the expression يَتِرَكُمْ أَعْمَالَكُمْ If just those who are in, in those, in no Arabic or interested in Arabic, وَتْرِ الشَّيْءِ is to to, to um, so if you if you say it um, is It's an expression that used to you he used in classical Arabic would mean that a man had a relative killed that he did not avenge. That was watru rajul. So yatirakum amalakum means that your actions, your deeds will be ineffective. That that's just um, a linguistic note. Okay, I think unless I remember something else uh, later, I think this is Surah Muhammad. I'm looking at my old notes, but I don't see. Yeah, um, the order in which we've covered these because we've talked about separately you know we go this through this incredible journey in Surah Baqarah and then we go to the you know um, to Imran and then we go so we're learning about you know coming to Medina then the defeat of some of this of Uhud and then go going back to the victory of Badr going through Anfal and then now to Muhammad and you see the symphony and the, the the power of the learning in that order because you know we were talking about you know it's interesting that even though the way things happened is you see you know the victory first and then the defeat but as we learned it here it was more powerful to almost approach it from 
the defeat and then to the victory and then to, you know, what we learned in Enfal and then today. Um, and it, it's, um, it's just an amazing, um, you know, uh, series of, of learning that, that we had the, the privilege of receiving. Um, this Sora was so incredible. I'll just um, share some of the highlights, even though you've just summarized everything. Um, but clearly, this is about a fundamental choice between two paths, the path of the Prophet Muhammad and the opposite, the path of Prophet Muhammad. And this is, you know, a philosophy of life, as you've mentioned, is a parable. Um, the one path representing peace and tranquility, meaning and purpose, um, being at peace with yourself and the world. And then the opposite, living a life of, um, you know, aimlessness, lack of purpose, um, which is also marked by um, confusion and um, sadness, unhappiness. It's the path of falsehood um, and the idea of even, you know, living life like cattle, just existing to consume and consuming to exist, which is such a powerful um, visual visualization of that. Um, it's always so valuable for you to explain for us the context and the history and the human reaction, the human story. Um, I think that that really um, brings it home um, and understanding the mindset of how people were reacting to the message, this problematic group, for example. Um, just to mention the principle of the, the prisoner treatment of the prisoners of war, either releasing them or ransoming or exchanging them, and your understanding um, that this is an intentional principle that was in the Quranic text for all time, that there's a moral power to it. Um, and that the point is that this is not about the victory, but, a, a, but to test you and, um, and to remember that whether you are in battle or beyond battle, that if you are with Allah, then Allah is with you, and that Allah will give you the resolve <clears throat> and the certitude and the firm commitment um, and, and the help um, that you need to escape the demons of doubt and confusion. And uh, the story about you know how people became impatient and turned off by the message of the Quran, um, again, was, was so... Um, it just helped us to, to understand people like that even in our age um, so pertinent to to what we are witnessing and then just this, the side story um, that you remembered about con God consciousness and you know when you're eating um, are you grazing like an animal or are you eating like a human being and to be conscious with every meal you have is to eat like a human being um, and then the story with uh, Sheikh Adel Aid um, about the the student who said or the person who said he always felt uncomfortable um, reading the Quran um, because so many of us are, you know, accustomed to whatever we fulfill our whims or desires with. Um, it was under important that you, this, this, what he said or what your sheikh said to this person was basically to turn inward and look at what it is that you have grown accustomed to um, fulfilling, you know, uh, your own whims or desires that makes you uncomfortable when you read the Quran because it's not the Quran, but it's actually you. Um, and for those who are truly committed that Allah aids them in being um, God conscious and the advice of Allah that if you want purity of the soul and serenity, then ask for forgiveness for your own sins, but also for the sins of your fellow believers. 
so that you pray for yourself and others and um, you know try to um, not just be selfish in, in that that Allah doesn't need the, the prayers but you do um, that Allah is your guardian and <clears throat> if you're on um, the path of the Prophet Muhammad um, if not then Allah is not and if you go go back or turn back you are going to drown in injustice and lose the bonds of decency between you which is so apt for what we're experiencing today um, and then the question you know don't they study the Quran which you said was extremely powerful for that time as well as time forever and that we could be on a path where um, our hearts are closed to the the Quran like as if there are locks on our hearts and that is what could happen if you don't make the sacrifices that are called for on uh, the Prophet Muhammad's path. Um, Allah knows ultimately what is in your heart. Um, and, you know, we people, like we Muslims, can should learn to recognize um, those people who are either making excuses or justifying injustice those people who refuse to um, make commitments or sacrifices or stand or, or effectively stand on the opposite side of Allah and the Prophet that Allah will test you to know who is truly sincere and that is the point um, not to call for peace um, when there is a cause to be fought and um, that um, you should you can do that from strength um, or, or look to peace from strength but peace from um, from weakness is oppression um, peace is harder to is a harder challenge than war and the really important point that the message of the Quran is coherent and consistent and it's not about war for war's sake um, that this life is only about play it's not serious it's what um, it's and and that what you are sacrificing is not your money um, and if you think of it as yours or that you feel a, a sense of entitlement that's where the ugliness comes in um, Allah doesn't need your sacrifice that's on you but the point is to commit to a principled life to rise to the challenge um, or we would have the fate of basically what we have today um, again to learn to recognize those people who justify injustice um, and defend not sacrificing and defend not living for principle and um, that we need to li live up to the challenge or Allah will replace us um, and then your message of don't say that you follow the, the surat if you don't understand the Prophet Muhammad's principles and sacrifices nor understand the Quran or God will replace us. Such a beautiful, powerful message. Thank you for helping us also to understand why this surah was called um, Muhammad, um, despite not really talking about Muhammad. But it's, it's this power of really understanding what the early Muslims understood um, from the message that they received at that time and it's just even more powerful for us today so thank you so so much um, alhamdulillah um, so we'll look forward to meeting on Tuesday inshallah and we can cover questions for Surah Anfal and also um, for Muhammad so please do send them in advance and um, enjoy the rest of your weekends and inshallah I hope you all stay safe and healthy and well we'll see you soon inshallah thank you so much alhamdulillah Assalamu alaikum.